On today's episode... I think that this will simply be the normal route to have a booster. It doesn't necessarily have to be every six months going forward because what also happens when you get the booster kind of trains the immune system a bit further to recognize the antigen. But I do think that it's fair to assume that maybe once a year we will get a booster shot for, for COVID, much as we get a booster shot for the influenza virus every year. So I think that this is just something that will be part of our life going forward. Welcome to the Active Share podcast that explores less obvious investing insights in a world that's always changing. I'm your host, Hugo Scott Gall. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. You're familiar with our COVID-19 science and economic series. And today we are going to give you another installment in that. We're going to really look at the next phase of the COVID pandemic. To discuss that, I have with me one of our global healthcare analysts, Camilla Oxhammer-Cruz, who has a PhD in infectious diseases. Also with me is our global equity strategist, Olga Battelle, who has a PhD in pretty much everything else. Olga and Camilla, welcome again. Thank, Thank you, Hugo. Hugo. We're delighted to be here. Okay, so lots of things to talk about with regards to the next phase of the COVID pandemic. I want to start with countries, and I'm going to start with questions to you, Camilla, which is Israel, UK, US. Different things going on in each of those countries, but they're all pretty interesting in terms of infection rates, mortality rates, what we're learning about vaccine efficacy. So maybe we could start with Israel. Israel has been one of the vaccine success stories in terms of percentage of population vaccinated and speed of vaccination. And yet Israel seems to be having, well, not seems to be, factually has a pretty sharply rising infection rate, which implies, therefore, a lot of breakthrough cases. A lot of people with vaccines are getting infected. So starting with Israel, Camilla, what can we learn from the last few months about what's happening in Israel? Thank you, Hugo. It's, it's a good starting point. Uh, as you said, Israel has been a little bit of a guinea pig when it comes to vaccination of COVID. And it's been really a forerunner for the rest of the world. And I believe that we have a lot to learn from Israel. So what do we see there? As you said, we have seen a sharp inc- increase in number of cases in the last couple of months uh, in Israel. and we have since July also seen an increase in hospitalization. But let's break down the numbers a little bit further. So if you look at the largest healthcare provider in Israel, called Klalit, they have vaccinated approximately 3 million people in Israel. Of those 3 million, 600 of those have suffered severe breakthrough cases since June. So that's much less than 1%. Of the 600 people that have suffered severe breakthrough cases, 75% of those are above 70 years old, and they were vaccinated five months or longer. So what does that tell us? Well, first of all, the number or the percentage of breakthrough cases, severe breakthrough cases, is extremely rare. And it's primarily happening to the elderly generation, so people that are, are 70 years old or that they have underlying diseases. And it also tells us that 
there is something going on with the vaccine, the protection of the vaccine a long time. So, so, so around five, six months, it seems like the protection we get from the vaccine start to wind down a bit. Why is that? It's actually quite expected to see some sort of wind down of the protection because after a while, the, the, the body feel that's sort of the acute phase of the whatever sort of pathogen it is experience is kind of it's passed beyond that. And the neutralizing antibodies that's circulating in our body is then normally starting to decline because quite honestly, I mean, we cannot have a huge amount of circulating neutralizing antibodies for every pathogen that we see through our life in our bloodstream that would completely clog our circulation so the body naturally winds down the neutralizing antibodies that is circulating in the system but it doesn't mean that we don't have any uh, any protection at all our memory cells our memory b cells t cells are still active and they still recognize uh, the pathogen up on exposure and start an, an immunological reaction but it can take a little bit longer time However, for those people, the elderly generation, they naturally had a lower immunological response to vaccines. So the average protection for severe COVID and hospitalization is approximately 92 to 96%, depending on what vaccine you got. But that is the average, right? For the elderly population uh, that normally has a lower immunological response to vaccine, that could be more... 70 or 80 percent. Now, if that starts to wind down, you start ending up in more dangerous territories, right? So, and that's why we see these severe breakthrough cases, primarily in the elderly generation and primarily in, in those that has received their, their second uh, shot five months or longer ago. So, it makes rather sense to me that we're seeing this pattern. And therefore, I think that it also makes sense that we're not talking about giving the elderly generation and those that are at high risk, a booster shot now during the fall. And I think that we are already seen in Israel, uh, we're talking about it and, and it will, will happen in, in the US and UK as well. And I think that this will simply be the normal route to have a booster. It doesn't necessarily have to be every six months going forward, because what also happens when you get the booster, it kind of trains the immune system a bit further to recognize the antigen. But I do think that it's fair to assume that maybe once a year we will get a booster shot for, for COVID, much as we get a booster shot for the influenza virus every year. So I think that this is just something that will be part of our life going forward. So what happened is not surprising to you. I think it's rather sense that we will see sort of that the protection we get from the vaccine is winding down. No one could predict exactly how long it will take, five months or eight months or a year. I think that that's the sort of was the biggest question mark, but that the protection was going to wind down a bit, particularly for the elder generation. I don't think that that is a huge surprise. So I hear you, Camilla. I hear you that what's happening in Israel is the precise timing is difficult to predict, but overall... This is to be expected. So therefore, does that mean what's happening in Israel is going to happen in bigger economies in the US and in Europe and UK? And so as we think about UK and US, the UK has perhaps been the boldest in, in saying actually all restrictions, anything to do with lockdowns is kind of gone. There are some 
remaining quarantine rules. If you test positive, you have to isolate your immediate household. But overall, the UK has gone almost fully open and has seen a rise in infection rates, but actually not the same rise in hospitalization rates. The US is not quite as open as the US uh, as the UK, but that varies. But the US has seen rising infection rates, Delta variant, and the hospitalization rate has risen actually faster than the UK's in terms of the relationship between infection rate and hospitalization rate. So that's something I want to discuss with you. But I guess the first question, this is one of those clumsy questions I ask where there are two things going on. But the first question is, is Israel a lead indicator? Is what's happening in Israel about to happen? Europe, including the UK, US. And so are we looking at a difficult September, October, November into the autumn, the fall or the winter where actually where you've got a deterioration in the climate as well, we're going to see rising infection rates and rising hospitalization rates due to vaccine efficacy waning, as well as those economies being quite open and you've got colder air as well. So question one, Israel's the lead indicator there's worse to come for those that vaccinated after Israel. Question two is really to talk about UK versus US. Differences in vaccination rate, but not huge. I think it's around 10% of population has a second dose difference. So 10, I think the UK is 10% higher than the US, but the hospitalization rate is very different. So that's the sort of second question. But the first one really is about what to expect next few months in the major economies, certainly in the West, due to fading vaccine efficacy. Right, that was a lot. <laughs> so like, no, that's a lot. I'm sorry, that was very, very bad. Let's try to break it down instead of one by one. So let's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, let's yeah, start yeah. with Israel as a lead indicator, which I think is great. it's a great question. It's a good topic. Yes, I do think that Israel is a lead indicator. And I do think that the pattern we are seeing in Israel, if we don't do anything, so that we will see pretty much the same thing in UK and the rest of the world or the rest of the developed world that has a large number of vaccinated people. So it will mean that the vaccination protection in the elderly generation will start to decline. And in association with that, we will see a larger number of uh, hospitalization sort of despite a, a double vaccination. It would still, if we look again at the data in, in Israel, the number of severe breakthrough cases is still very, very low. I want to point that out. The vaccine is very, very good, but it just will become a little bit less good. And in particular for those, that part of the population that is this older and has a weaker immune response to a vaccine, it can put that part of the population at risk. And therefore I think that it's logical that we're now starting to talk about booster shots for the elderly population and, and, the, and sort of the frail part of the population. So that makes sense. And, and, and already sort of in the US and UK, we're starting to, we haven't seen that starting to roll out, but I, I think it's it will start now September, October with the older, older generation. What we will also see in the fall and what we haven't talked too much about is the children. So children has up until now been relatively protected because we have they haven't been to school. They have sort of been 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 a little bit in a bubble. And now schools are opening up again here in the UK and, and in the US and we sort of in-person school. So we will see more cases among children. While we know that the children are not reacting as severely as the elderly or the sort of the older part of the population, we will see cases of severe COVID in children. And 
the question is how we will react to that. Uh, we don't have a lot of data yet on children because, like I said, they have they put them a little bit in the bubble up until now. So that's another trend that will be very important to follow. What will happen now the schools are opening up? How will sort of the cases among children and how will that play out? I think that that is another phenomenon this fall that will be very important to, to follow. And particularly since we will not only battle COVID this fall, we will probably also battle other respiratory infections such as influenza, RSV, denovirus, etc. They would come back. We haven't seen a lot of that sort of last year. So we were relatively spared from from those kind of infections because schools were pretty much closed all over uh, the developed world. But now that we open up schools, we will see those other respiratory infections bubble up. And how will our immune system respond to a potential double infection of COVID, influenza, COVID, RSV? We don't really know because we haven't really seen that up until now. So there's still a lot of question marks. There's still a lot of sort of trends that we need to monitor and to see how we as society responds to this fall and winter. So I think that that was the first part of your question, right? Yeah. Let's bring in Olga, because some things we've already discussed, such as waning vaccine efficacy, that creates a risk, creates a risk to older parts of the population, and you can attempt to mitigate that with boosters. If you can't mitigate with boosters, then you are either thinking about a lockdown or de facto lockdown for older people, saying that you've got to be more careful. Then you talked about the risk to children. As children go back to school, are they strong vectors? And indeed, with the Delta variant, will there be greater risk to children's health, which so far it seems that this has been a disease of the elderly and the unwell versus the young. But I just wonder here, Olga, whether these sort of increased risks in most sort of Western economies with potentially a worse flu season because we haven't had flu for a while, don't know how to make the right vaccines for it, rising COVID infection rates maybe from schools being back and maybe rising hospitalizations as per Israel, the need to get boosted, all of that may well have psychological implications that the idea we would put this behind us and once we're all vaccinated or everyone who wants to be vaccinated is vaccinated then we can carry on as before that sort of hopeful sunlit upland scenario seems a bit less likely now than it did four five six months ago there may well and it's just a question there may well be some permanent changes in behavior as people have kind of got used to being cautious and maybe a bit afraid and talk around the need for a booster, rising infection rates, and we haven't even really talked long COVID yet. This could mean that potential economic activity is reduced and maybe even permanently reduced. What say you, Olga, to that? Well, that is definitely a tall question. So let me take it one step at a time, Hugo. The first point is definitely acknowledging that you're onto something when we compare the euphoria of the introduction of the vaccine, especially when we learned the high efficacy rates of the vaccines compared to what we had expected this time last year. I remember Camilla vividly saying that, you know, a vaccine that is 30 to 50 percent effective is quite good. And obviously we got vaccines that were, you know, had efficacy rates in the mid to high 90s. So, you know, nothing short of stellar. 
And obviously, the economic rebound that we saw subsequent to the rollout of the vaccine has also been nothing short of stellar. In the second quarter of this year, both U.S. and European economies recorded double-digit growth rates. So for those that are interested in comparisons, there aren't any. We've never grown this fast as a group since probably, you know, after World War II, but it's too far to go back into the reliable records to really compare. So the initial euphoria, to your point of, you know, COVID being over, is definitely behind us. In terms of the permanent shift in behavior and attitude, that is more difficult to call. And being that I'm a perennial optimist, perhaps I'm biased in what I'm looking at. But prior pandemics, and unfortunately we've had several, the most comparable one, I think, to the current one, please, Camilla, correct me if I'm wrong, happened in the mid to late 1950s. These types of pandemics usually last several years, two to two and a half years being the most common. And we have seen, we as economists, we as sociologists, we as anthropologists have not seen any permanent shifts of behavior as a consequence of those. Yes, there is a non-negligible cohort of people in almost every society that are more cautious and that cautiousness gets perhaps more bit up, more exacerbated. Maybe it is as high as 20 to 25% of the population. And these people will remain more cautious, less mobile, less willing to engage and interact in a fuller, you know, lifestyle that they had before COVID, perhaps longer than many of the rest of us. But we don't have any evidence in societies that these shifts, once the pandemics are truly well behind us, whether we reach herd immunity, whether the virus you know, settles into a more dormant pattern, whatever the case may be. Once the pandemic is truly behind us, that with a, you know, passage of time, sometime between six to 12 months thereafter, that people don't really fully resume their economic and social activities. And the reason being is that, you know, we're biologically, we're social animals. We're hardwired to interact. One of the most important things that we really need for not only survival, but also thriving is, you know, is human touch, human interaction. And it's okay to exchange ideas on teams, but, you know, it's hard to reach over and touch someone on the shoulder on teams, right? And so that bit of human interaction is something that will be missing in a virtual environment, in a self-isolation. And people willingly or not will crave that. And so once the pandemic subsides, whether it's another six months, another 12 months, hopefully even sooner than both of those, my optimist sense that is backed so far by the experience we've seen prior that within six to 12 months, people will return to their pre-COVID living patterns. Commander, I, I often think of you as not quite as much of an optimist as as Olga. And of course, you're a Swede. So... <laughs> Do you agree with that? Olga thinks we get used to this and then actually we just decide as a, a species just there's no other way but to carry on as before. Do you agree? I think Olga has a very, very strong point in, instead of in that we're social animals or social individuals. We want to have a, we need a physical interaction, but how that physical interaction takes place can, of course, vary so that we can now we're spending more time at home, so so maybe our physical or personal interaction is just changed. You know, we, we spend less time at work, we're spending more time at home. That can very well sort of, I think that there will be a new normal. Exactly how that will look like, I cannot necessarily predict. But 
to Olga's point, what we saw here in, in UK when they open up the economy fully, open up all the nightclubs, all the restaurants, you know, people went out in masses, in masses. I mean, that is why, I mean, I think that that's the, the, the main reason why we're seeing such a huge spread of the virus in the UK June, July and August is that they open up the economy fully and, and people just craving that social interaction and, and entertainment and, and all those things that we've been missing for such a long time. It's been one and a half year. I think that there will be, we will go back to some sort of normality. Will it be exactly as it was before? Probably not. We have been living with this for one and a half year. It's probably going on for, you know, at least six months, maybe 12 months more. Of course, that will sort of change certain things. Is that necessarily bad for economy? I don't necessarily think so, but it just be slightly different. We find new ways of doing things and, and new ways of interacting and new ways of socializing. Is this going to be slightly different? Can we talk about two more things? One is herd immunity and the second is new variants, further variants. So I guess on herd immunity, I read something saying that in the UK, something like 94% of adults have some antibodies. And yet the UK infection rate is, is, is quite high. It's pretty high globally. Is herd immunity, and back when this all started, people were saying herd immunity could come at 70%, 75%, 80%. doesn't seem to have happened. Is herd immunity just a, a red herring, the wrong way to think about this? Yeah, well... To some extent, yeah, because it's very hard to define exactly what is herd immunity, because it, we're dealing with somewhat of a moving target here. We've seen that the COVID-19 is, is changing. So the herd immunity or, or what we need to accomplish to reach herd immunity is also changing. And we have now seen a couple of new variants that we don't know exactly how much more virulent they are, but to say they're, they're more virulent. And of course, with more virulent variants, we need to achieve a higher herd immunity to be able to fully protect ourselves for these new variants. But what does it, and, and also, so we are talking about changing in, instead of in the immunological response, we've seen that, okay, we will get sort of fully vaccinated, but that is also a moving target. And so six months from your second dose, you may not be fully protected anymore. And Herd immunity is, is not one target, it's, it's more of a, sort of a move, moving target, unfortunately, and that makes it quite difficult to, to have that as our main goal and main focus to reach herd immunity, because we don't really know exactly what it means and what we need to achieve to really get herd immunity. Uh, we've seen another, take measles, for example, so it's the most virulent virus that we know. We need to achieve over sort of some 96, 98% immunity in order to achieve herd immunity. It can easily sort of pop up uh, local outbreaks when that herd immunity decline to, to just sort of below 90%. So that we see the virus then uh, re-emerging very, very quickly. It's a moving target. I don't think that it's something that we entirely should rely upon and say, that, well, now we have reached herd immunity. We are done. It doesn't work like that. A herd immunity would be something that we then would have to sort of entertain forever. And, and given that we have now, we're seeing also new variants. And I think that that's also a topic that is very important and interesting to discuss what these new variants are and what they can lead to. So far, 
the new variants that we have seen has, has been uh, more virulent, but there haven't really been any changes regarding the immunological protection that the vaccine provides. Uh, there was some talk first that the lambda variants may be able to evade the immune system. I think that we now uh, have seen enough evidence supporting that in a real-world setting, the vaccine is as protecting, protecting us as well from the lambda variant as from the other variants. But we are now changing the environment for the virus, right? So we have an environment with a high level of spread of the virus at the same time as we have an increasing degree of vaccinated people. And what that means is that the virus has a lot of shots on goal trying to evade the immunological protection that the vaccine provides. You know, evolution is the force of trial and error. Trials sort of constantly to become better, trying to sort of evade obstacles. And now it has an obstacle, and that is the growing number of vaccinated or sort of people. So we are putting us obviously at a risk, and no one can really define exactly how big that risk is. But there, there is a risk that now that we have a huge number of spread of the virus, an increasing number of vaccinated people, that the virus gets a lot of chances of trying to evade that immune protection. And sooner or later, we will see new serotypes, i.e. new variants that can evade the vaccine. We see that every year with, with influenza, so it's not really anything strange. But the time aspect is, of course, very important. If we see new new serotypes a couple of years from now, we would be well prepared. It would be easy to, sort of, to change the vaccines and roll out new vaccine programs. Should we see that anytime soon, I think that that would be rather detrimental for the people and for the economy. So that would be the bare case. Should we see any of these serotypes, new serotypes popping up? Obviously, we are standing with a completely new situation at hand. Just to finish up, really, is on vaccines, as Olga said, pretty amazing, the speed and the efficacy of these vaccines. With your broader healthcare analyst hat on, Camilla, will this optimism extend into a, a real period of innovation? Will there be lots of spill-off beneficial innovations around not just vaccines, but treatments, etc.? Is, is this, I mean, you just said, look, you know, perhaps we're in a slightly tricky phase where if the vaccine is not effective against new variants in the short term that could be risky but medium term are we looking at a spurt a wave a surge of healthcare innovation absolutely not just sort of in, in vaccine but of course sort of the what we're seeing now with the development of mrna vaccine is is, is completely new a vaccine model that will be used not only for covid but for a vast number of different diseases that would be a huge game changer be a huge game changer for influenza for example as we said before a good influenza uh, vaccine is maybe provides sort of 60 percent protection against the virus not particularly good if we compare to these new covid vaccines where we're sort of generating a 90 percent protection so i think that this will be a huge game changer for vaccine development in general will it spill over to other development in healthcare. I think that, that the optimism is, is, of course, sort of many factors sort of involved in this, but I do think that we are standing in somewhat of an inflection point. We see so many sort of elements of positive development in, in research in healthcare that 
together they will disperse a huge change in research, but also in how we do and how we think about healthcare. So the digitalization of the healthcare system, the use of AI tools massively change how we do, how we conduct healthcare going forward, but also how we do research going forward. So so that has brought a lot of enthusiasm about changes in the healthcare system that in terms of the attracts a lot of capital going into development and and into the healthcare sector. So there are a lot of positive forces with capital coming in, with research development, with clinical development. So altogether, I think that we are standing at a very interesting inflection point now in healthcare that will drive massive growth over the next decade. And we will see huge changes in the healthcare system and how we think about disease and how we think about patients going forward. Patients will not be patients necessarily. Patients will be consumers. And that sort of this mindset change is quite interesting. Definitely. Final question goes to you, Olga, and two questions, bad habit, still going with a two-question format. But based on what you heard from Camilla around sort of shorter-term risk, maybe a more potent variant that can evade vaccines where it's, you know, it's this game of cat and mouse, and the vaccines might lag. Are you still staying as optimistic ar- around economic recovery? That's question one. Question two is because you're an optimist. I think what we just heard from Camilla was extremely optimistic about an innovation surge, never let a good crisis go to waste kind of thing. Do you sort of share that optimism and see actual the potential for hard to precisely forecast, hard to precisely know, but spill off beneficial innovation coming out of this. So that's it. Two questions. Okay. So the first one, if I can put a time horizon on it, the first one is a bit of a shorter term question. And the second one is more of a longer term where this will lead and where we settle out at. So let me tackle the first one in turn. So economic recovery following the introduction of the vaccines and the reopening has been extremely strong, as strong, if not stronger than we anticipated. That recovery in and of itself, even if the virus had completely died away and we would be living in a post-COVID world, which probably most, if not all of us, are very eager to re-enter and to meet again, the economic recovery would naturally be fading from here. It is simply impossible for developed economies like the U.S. and Europe to maintain double-digit growth rates for anything like a multi-quarter time period. The more germane question, the relevant question, we're already starting to see that slowdown unfold. The relevant question for us and for the markets, I suppose, is what is the cruising altitude for our economies? In other words, what kind of growth rate do our economies settle at? Are we going to go back to the pre-COVID, the last decades, very mediocre growth rates of just around 2% and in the case of Europe, sub 2%? Or are we going to reach a higher cruising altitude of perhaps somewhere between 2 and 3% growth? Over a decade or even longer, that makes a tremendous difference in terms of our quality of life and then the quantum of output we produce. We're talking about trillions of dollars in income, in consumption, in investments, et cetera. So that distinction, the cruising altitude bit, the sort of steady state growth rate and the difference between 2% and 3% at an annual pace is non-trivial. And that remains an open question. So for the next six months, we're looking at a decelerating growth, almost irrespective of what the virus does. 
Obviously, if the worst materializes and virus mutates in ways that are completely unpredictable at this point, such that we are forced to have some more forms of lockdowns because our hospital systems are are inundated again, this is very much not our base case at this point. It's very, very bare case with a relatively low probability of materializing. But if something like that were to happen, obviously the economic recovery would stall out more substantially. But even in the absence of something like this, we're still going to see a deceleration in economic activity almost across the board. So that's the near term. On the longer term, as you said, Hugo, never let a good crisis go to waste. In this case, you know, that statement usually refers to, you know, governments or other public policy vigilantes to take up the baton and do something to promote some kind of development. In this case, I'm actually more optimistic because no further government action is required. Crises usually produce a bout of innovation, any kind of crisis. COVID was a pretty close to an existential crisis as we've seen in the recent history, and there's no doubt that it will spur the type of innovation that Camilla has talked about. Whether we see the benefits of this on the investment landscape or as patients within five years or 10 years or 20 years remains an open question, but there are lots of companies and researchers that are already very excited about the fact that the you know, sort of messenger RNA route of research, viral route of research has been massively underfunded in the U.S. and elsewhere for decades and decades as we kind of pursued our knowledge of of genes and genomics more broadly. And this area is obviously has shown to be very, very exciting. And, you know, the kinds of lights of day that it will see and the kind of funding that it's already getting will result in a step change in terms of the discoveries that we're you know, on the cusp of, and maybe that some that are a little bit further away. And that is nothing short of revolutionary and exciting in my mind. So very much echoing what Camilla has said. And, you know, basically need is the mother of all invention and we definitely have the need. And increasingly we have the resources, the tools and the personnel to bring those innovations closer to us as consumers and to us as investors much, much faster than we've ever done before. So this is very exciting. Well, we've ended on a very positive note, which is a necessary uh, condition to appearing on this podcast. So thank you both very much. I can't even remember what installment this is, but we've done quite a few of these and they are always very, very interesting. Camilla, thank you for your insights. Olga, thank you for your unbridled optimism. Hopefully this will be the last one we do on COVID, but I fear maybe it won't. Anyway, thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Active Share. To hear additional insights from William Blair Investment Management, visit us at blog.williamblair.com. The Active Share is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. For questions, comments, or topics you'd like to hear discussed, email us at podcastim@williamblair.com. This content is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of investors' objectives, guidelines, and restrictions.
The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of this recording, are subject to change without notice as economic and market conditions dictate, and may not reflect the views and opinions of other investment teams within William Blair Investment Management. Factual information has been obtained from sources we believe to be reliable, but its accuracy, completeness, or interpretation cannot be guaranteed. Any discussion of particular topics is not meant to be comprehensive and may be subject to change. This material may include forecasts, estimates, outlooks, projections, and other forward-looking statements. Due to a variety of factors, actual events may differ significantly from those presented. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Any investment or strategy mentioned herein may not be suitable for every investor. References to specific companies are for illustrative purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security. William Blair Investment Management may or may not own any securities of the companies referenced. It should not be assumed that any investment in the companies referenced was or will be profitable.